Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Edit audio. What is really cool about the last five years is the proliferation of young wahine, particularly young women, getting their faces done. It's so normalized. And I say that's reaching the threshold of once again being just something that we take for granted. And sometimes, you know, we take young Māori take it for granted so much that we have to remind them that we struggled to get this, you know. Mm. It was only 30-something years ago that we struggled to get this back. And now we have, I can pass people in the street that are wearing moko on their face. You know, that's something, you know, to be celebrated because it also spells another level of cultural health, you know, that we can feel comfortable enough walking around in this world, declaring who we are visibly on our faces. What's up, y'all? Welcome to season two of The Teardown, a podcast hosted by me, Vegas Inc., hopefully still your favorite polarizing tattooer. Every episode, I sit down and chat with amazing guest artists, and we dive in more intimately on the politics of the tattoo industry, as well as some topics I feel are more relevant in contemporary tattooing. So now that we're all set up, let's get started. Are you ready? Our guest today is Julie Palma-Pengeli, Julie is a practitioner of political identity activism through the teachings and practice of Mahi Toy, particularly Tamoko, which is the Maori art of tattooing. She's a Waine Tamoko revitalist of over 30 years and Maori artist practitioner living in her tribal region of Taruanga, Moana. She's been the owner of Art Body Creative Tattoo Studio in Mount Manganui for 11 years. Hi. <laughs> wow. Hi, Kyoto Vegas. How are you doing today? Um, good, thank you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me on the show. Of course, we we're so excited to have been able to find you. This is a topic that I'm like very interested in personally and um, have really only been exposed to Maori tattooing through TikTok, if you're aware, like the TikTok world, <laughs> but haven't really even been able to find a lot of women or female practitioners. So it's, re- it's really exciting to be able to meet you. Kia Thank you, Vegas. Yeah, I've been practicing for quite a long time now, but there are a lot of women artists, um, but possibly less politically involved than myself. Yeah. Let's start with some icebreakers. Outside of tattooing, what's one thing you do that would surprise people? Okay. 
<laughs> I actually, outside of tattooing, well, actually, most of my time outside of tattooing, I'm involved in trying to actively create a legacy space, if you like, for Māori visual arts in our region. It takes up most of my spare time. So that that basically includes all of our visual arts, both traditional and contemporary, within my Tauranga Moana region for Māori. So what does that like? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it actually looks like a lot of work. <laughs> um, dr- yeah, <laughs> driving um, a charitable trust and some of the activities we're doing kind of involve everything from youth through to our older generation. So we run an Indigenous tattoo marking festival that invites practitioners from all around the world, those that are in the process of reviving their traditions and also those that are further along to get together and share those traditions. It's something that we host as a tribal region here. Um, We also run a youth programme, so that's our youth kind of reclaiming their identity through our visual arts language. The other two programmes we run is um, we have an annual awards. So we have a time of the year, which is now a national holiday, where we celebrate Māori uh, New Year, which is a seasonal time of year, and it normally falls around June and July in any given year. And we run awards of excellence in Māori visual arts, and the other thing we're doing is we're bringing all our artists online into free product sites. We call them gem sites through an online um, gallery portal that will profile our artists in the region. So that's kind of my passion is creating a, a legacy space for um, our people. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm from the Americas and I'm Black, I'm Black Caribbean diasporic. And, you know, we spend so much time trying to teach even our own society, our own communities about our own histories, especially in so-called Canada, as there's an act of erasure and genocide against Indigenous people that happens here. Also, like, Black degradation, starting with transatlantic slave trade. I mean, I, I say all this to say... I haven't had a lot of opportunity to learn so much about how colonization has affected other regions and in particular indigenous cultures. And so I wanted to know if you can explain a bit of why it is important for Maori reclamation and creating these spaces and what, like how, why is there a disconnect for some folks in those communities? Obviously um, for Maori, it's very particular that we, we were colonized fairly recently um, in the world, but that colonisation was violent uh, physically and it was violent to the things that we value. I mean, for me, where I can make a difference is in the arts. And for us, we never actually had a written language, like our oral history and our arts were our language. So it's important for us to emphasise that, you know, one of the things is arts are really accessible for most people, and the secondly, they're crucial to our very being, to our communication. So that reclamation is really important. We're a minority, and I see in other countries that the issues are way more complex because, like you mentioned, the diaspora of actually being from somewhere else and coming in. But I see in those countries that if you don't have a really solid foundation for treating your Indigenous people 
right, then you don't have a solid foundation for treating those other um, minorities. So in New Zealand, we have a lot of immigrants. We Particularly, we have responsibility to Pacific Island communities that New Zealand has a relationship with. And it's our responsibility as treaty partners, Māori and the English, particularly the Māori, to not be aggravated by those immigrants that come in, because a lot of them are our kin. But in actual fact, in order for us to welcome them in, we have to have a healthy foundation to do that. So it's kind of a circular thing. And one of the things is, in comparison to other parts of the world, I think New Zealand is actually further along in embracing other cultural identities, immigrant identities, because it's further along in the conversation with its own Indigenous communities. It's by no means perfect, but, you know, we bring each other along, I think. I mean, that's interesting, that, I, and I love that you say that, because in, in so-called Canada, uh, Turtle Island, Indigenous folks to hear often speak about, like, immigrant folks and diaspor- diasporic folks not being the enemy and, in fact, are not, like, you know, when this dialogue happens, I'm sure you've heard it, especially like with, with America of like anti-immigration and xenophobia and things like that, where they're like, these folks are not our enemies. These are some, a lot of those are victims of colonization and capitalism and are fleeing these spaces because of those systems and entering here that um, in countries that have adopted or created or perpetuated white supremacist colonial violence. And so whether there's migrant folks here or, di- or folks from the diaspora that are here, the white supremacist violence is still active here. Like, and when you say that you folks are further along, it's like here, I was just having a conversation with folks who are, are going through immigration. And these are folks who are like more radical leftists. And they're like, our immigration tests completely erases indigeneity, completely erases Canada's history. So you come in here with this other idea of what so-called Canada is and then as you come to build community with folks, you realize that there's like a whole other culture that was thriving that was like stripped of all of that, right? So I think that's a very excellent, excellent point. There needs to be a mutual respect and humanity done for folks who existed on, on this land prior to. And I know a lot of Indigenous people here don't even refer to like, let's say, Black folks as settlers, as they were like stolen people brought to a stolen land. So there's there's something to be learned everywhere, I think. Yeah, I think one of the underpinnings of our um, Indigenous festival is essentially that as Indigenous peoples, and for the most part undergone a a colonial paradigm and minorities, but we share a really common kin in our connection to the earth and to our origin stories, and we actually share, in a lot of senses, actual whakapapa, we call it, genealogy. Like, we have connections physically as well. So, you know, rather than divide us, there's actually strength in being understanding that together. And I think if we can find those fundamental um, similarities, we have a better position. And I think when I say that Māori have... a a relatively good position. By no means are we doing well as a people. It's just that we have quite high visibility because we were colonised fairly recently and we are quite 
we're quite strong political advocates for our rights. And I think even as a minority around 19%, that visibility and the willingness or the necessity to hear that, because it's it's not good favour these days to be violent <laughs> against Indigenous peoples. There's a whole lot of other violence going on that's more sanctioned violence, but I think that, you know, we have a responsibility in, as Māori and Aotearoa to help those more invisible because America is, you know, even our Hawaiian friends, they're just another tiny um, minority of America. We have a responsibility as Indigenous peoples to kind of take other people along and I think there's a lot of power in the Indigenous connections that we're making, and many of us are making um, throughout the world. You know, like a lot of Māori went to Standing Rock and stood by Hawaiians, you know. Um, it's that kind of solidarity, I think, that reminds the industrial craziness that, um, you know, there's a human element and we're not going to let it get away <laughs> upon us. That's beautiful. The idea that it's a collective liberation that none yeah. of us are free until until all of us are free. Exactly. When you say fairly recently, what how what was? Oh, when were we colonized? Mm-hmm. Well, formally, um, British established the treaty was the establishing document in 1840. So um, mm. English settlers were coming from the 1700s onwards, but formal occupation happened quite rep- rapidly after 1840. And by by the 1900s, 80% of Māori population were wiped out by flu, by the influenza epidemic. So, yeah, that's what we faced, becoming a minority very quickly in our own land. Can, can I ask also, an indigeneity here, or what has been forced on Indigenous people and Indigenous folks here, is a, the idea of blood quantum? <laughs> and um, yeah, and um, indigenous folks having to solidify their and it's quotations their indigeneity um, through uh, reporting to the government and having an ID card. Obviously, there's folks having conversations of surrounding blood quantum and then colorism and like what is a proximity to indigeneity, what makes somebody actually indigenous or not, and. Do those conversations happen in the same ways with Maori folks or do we disengage with blood quantum? Um, the conversation happened, but it's it's past its, its popularity. Like I think around about the 80s, the government had a system whereby they, a quantum measure was the measure of being Maori. They no longer use that. I actually am guilty of not filling in the recent statistics, census statistics, but um, I know that it has become unpopular to talk about quantum. I mean, we mm. have our own tribal, the tribal regions that are recognised by the government, the tribal runanga, we call them, groupings. They they collect their membership and they collect it by whakapapa. And whakapapa is actually, like you say, it's that genealogical link to parentage, but it's not about quantum. Like you could be a tiny, small percentage, and consider yourself Māori. And accepted in community? Absolutely. But, you know, acceptance is always a a really fluid thing because communities can be quite polarised in that way, like the ones that are home in the community and they live their life around the marae, which is the traditional meeting house, they might look at people outside in the cities that don't come home 
less favourably, but our own, and that's a lesson that our own communities have to work through. But in terms of the outer world, you know, it's up to you how proudly you say that you're Māori. And people move Mm. in and out of that with less comfort. You know, as a community, that's, I find that actually amongst body marking, you know, who's entitled, who's not. As a community, I have a really progressive view. I feel that, you know, as a minority, we need to embrace and bring to the fold everybody that has a Māori identity because you can't tell them to go away because they're not traditional enough or, you know, not dark enough or whatever. They are entitled by birth to be and stand as a Māori and therefore um, our challenge is to embrace them and the lessons are learned along the way, you know, and we shouldn't fall into that blood quantum trick of allowing people to define us, whether we're authentic or not, you know. And we shouldn't fall into that trap ourselves. So how did you get started with tattooing? Like, what was that journey like for you? Well, I moved in and out of art since I was really young and tried to be other things and they just didn't resonate with me. But um, I started my art training uh, in a practical sense and then went to university and got quite politicised but I still trained in art in a Western sense from schooling. And I started making connections through learning about development and anthropology. I started um, my learning in anthropology as well, which interestingly enough, the study of art up until about the 80s, the study of Māori art was anthropological. It was never art. You know, you studied art by studying Western art. And that paradigm still sits quite quite strongly in schools today. So, um, yeah, I just happened to move into the anthropological circles and then art started to resonate with me because it was like, okay, so there's actually quite a difference between Western art, which is privileged and hangs on rich people's walls, and, you know, Māori art, which is actually all around us and embodies our whole communication and way of being. Yeah, so I went and studied an an actual, the first Māori visual arts degree where I learned contemporary um, expressions, expressing being a Māori in a contemporary up-to-date, if you like. And at the same time, I met my, who was to become my husband, and we were both traversing that, you know, how does art make meaning for us as a Māori? And yeah, we both desired at this time we had small exposure to mokko, but we both desired to have mokko. And so with frustration that we couldn't get it, we started practicing together. And there was a small body of practitioners. Derek Lardelli was the most visual at the time, and he was probably one of the main change agents. But very quickly, um, we did an art commission together, and we raised enough money to buy some mokko gear, and we started that journey together And importantly, you know, the people that were ready to take it on were an important part of that journey. You know, if there was no one willing, if the time wasn't right, then it wouldn't have happened. But at that particular time, there was a small group of Māori doing the same thing. And so uh, we have a national Māori arts body that encouraged it. And, yeah, as a group, we kind of moved together and we spend a lot of time going around our communities 
educating them as to why Mokul needed to come back into the world of light and why it was important. And just to put that in context, in 1907, the government passed a policy called the Tohunga Suppression Act, and the Tohunga is the name for our um, our specialist in anything. So the Tohunga for Kairo is the specialist in carving. But basically the, the premise of that law was to stop Māori practising anything that was significant. So that was carving, tattooing, healing, anything that they saw could erode what was important to us as a community and erode our um, our religious, if you could call it religious, our fundamental belief system. That made it illegal for us to practice body marking. So that was one of the real reasons that it went away. It took a little while, like there's a famous woman practitioner of Moko. She was also a healer from a district adjacent to me and she carried on, she was hidden um, in various communities and she carried on practicing. So um, the practice of the woman's moko on the chin, that stuck around a little bit longer than some of the other practices like the full moko on the male. But eventually, you know, the practice was pretty much barren as a contemporary practice, albeit sort of being practiced by um, prisoners and gang communities. You know, they were taking images out of books and and blending it with tattoo. Yeah, so that's really how the revival happened. And a lot of it kind of took speed around 1990 when the government had invested a lot of money into 150 years since the treaty was signed. And that kind of spearheaded a big revival of Māori um, arts, including waka building and carving and all sorts of arts. And Mokul just started, because it was associated with the body, there was a lot of shame around it to start with. You know, should it come back? We're going to be persecuted. We won't get jobs, all those sorts of things. But it came back on other parts of the body really before it came back on the face. So you would say that you're part of like the first wave of folks who like revitalized it or like mainstreamed it? Yeah, I guess so, because um, it was <clears throat> it was a conscious movement and it was a conscious effort. Like that's what we what we concentrated on doing. We went to a lot of public spaces, museum spaces. We went collectively as a group to very um, important Maori spaces. And then we went within our own communities and sometimes as a group and sometimes just as parts of that group, and we educated. So I always say to the practitioners today, you know, one of the things you're so lucky for is that you can now own a studio and you can be busy for five days a week. You know, we spent 80% of our time working with our communities, trying to bring it back in a healthy way, you know, in terms of where you need to see the tools of the oppressor and discard those tools, um, like, mm. you know, poor health choices, um, smoking, acts of violence, those sorts of things, and and where Mokul can help you with your journey of healing. So we spent a lot of time doing that. And then back then we spent a lot of time making needles and, and trying to access yeah. equipment. So, you know, we didn't get the privilege of using our hands as easily as people do today. You know, it was something that we we burnt through weekends and evenings to do this. 
and it wasn't always an easy practice. And one of the reasons we did it as a group and we spent a lot of time publicly was to ensure that we met the standards of a safe practice so that we weren't going to get backlash for that, you know, for taking Mm -hmm. risks. So, yeah, we, I mean, we were lucky that we had a national organisation that could see the vision as well to help us help us do that collectively in a safe way. So around that time is when you opened your studio or is your studio more recent? The studio is more recent. So I think with the revival, you kind of go through phases and people ask me some of these questions all the time, like, would you put tāmoko on non-Māori, you know? Um, mm. and, and in the first part of the revival, I was really certain that no, you know, um, moko didn't belong in studios, it didn't belong on non-Māori, and that that particular part of the movement was all about us reclaiming and having it for us because some of the, the factors that stopped us getting it was poor socioeconomic, we couldn't afford it, we didn't think we qualified, we thought we were going to be persecuted for it. There's so many barriers, historical barriers and present barriers to us receiving our our tonga, our gifts. And so we had to get through those barriers first. And then, sorry, can I ask, um, we have like a health and safety process here where we have to be licensed a particular way, inspected in a particular way. And honestly, to some degree, I sometimes feel like these are people that actually don't tattoo and they just oversee nail salons, hair salon, like everything, and like don't necessarily understand the practice at all. So I wonder what if they're what the process looks like in New Zealand and with your practice, like do they infringe often? Did you have to create like did they have to create something separate as an oversight or well, the fact that we had a an umbrella body pushing us meant that we had a little bit of respect, but also the government took a, a bit of a hands-off approach and said to Māori, okay, they don't have an actual law, right? They have guidelines, and they asked us as a group to help contribute to those guidelines. So we were lucky in that they recognised that um, we were trying to make it a safe practice. They didn't want to impose constraints culturally, And the Samoans were already practicing hand tap in New Zealand. And that had a couple of um, fatalities from that process. So that was the reason the guidelines came about. But the government were actually really good at not imposing laws around it. But what's happened since then is that different regions, different towns, have actually created Um, rules around it. So if I go to Auckland, I'd have to be aligned with a studio and have that health certification. Where I am at the moment, our studio doesn't have to have one. But if I go to the South Island and practice, I've gone to a health institution and practiced moko. And when they did a newspaper article, I ended up with the council coming and imposing. But again, those aren't those are just quite simple guidelines. They're not actually really constraining. Yeah. It really depends on how they work. Like as owner of a studio, there's a lot of our practitioners that are working from home. And I don't totally disagree with having guidelines because, you know, I end up fixing some of those jobs. And yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so yeah, and um, but just because you have them doesn't mean a studio is doing strict, strictly doing it either. So, 
I don't know. I don't really have a, an answer to that question, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do have guidelines and we encourage safe practice. It doesn't matter whether you're working in a studio or not. Yeah. I was thinking about when you folks first started and were like yeah. building the needles and just developing the practice, but I'm sure like everywhere else, there are some health and safety guidelines and practices too. Yeah. We had our own very strict, you know, protocols around working and by sharing as a group, Um, we pretty much understood the reason we were undertaking those guidelines was to ensure that, you know, we looked after what we were trying to do, which was to bring, you know, our skin marking back to a healthy place. Um, And that was Mm. a a conscious decision to do it with needles and machines and not with hand tools because we knew machines fell under regulations for safe practice. We couldn't guarantee it with traditional tools at that time. We'll be right back after this short break. You've been tattooing for a long time. I I was curious, do you have any like roots or relationship to the tattoo industry within the like the Americas? Like, have you attended conventions? Do you know of like American artists who are like considered the grandfathers of tattooing or like the yeah. grandmothers of tattooing? Like, um, yeah, I've I've followed, I guess, historically my own share of you know what is considered the rock stars of tattooing industry I've been to um, a few conventions including local ones and I've been to Amsterdam which was actually really eye-opening for me and I have I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of how the world views tattooing and how it views indigenous tattooing and you know you can get really tied up in in that like I know for a lot of our young people today they see conventions and and competitions and all that and actually changing, modifying their practices to fit into the tenets of what Western tattooing is, like putting more realism and shading and colour. And it's kind of like, yeah, I, I feel like a bit of resistance here. Like for me, I try, I do contemporary sort of stuff, but I do it on traditional terms. I try to keep with the tenets of what our tradition was and grow it from there. And also I think one of the, like you can't run in and go, you're not doing, and you stop copying our stuff. You know, you've actually got to be proactive about promoting what you do as artists and taking control of it. You can't be worried about people going to, like in Amsterdam, everyone was doing Polynesian and Māori hybrid stuff. And we, you know, we took a group of like 12 Indigenous Māori and Samoan to Amsterdam and they still went to all those Dutch people doing it because they could speak their language, you know, even when we were. Mm. But what we do when we travel is we carry our culture with us. So we carry our dance, we carry our authenticity, we carry our rituals, and all you can do is educate people. And, you know, sometimes they don't understand. They go, oh, but we love your culture and we feel we're, you know, we're Mm. doing good things. And we're like, no, no, you're not. Because you don't understand that you're taking it out of context, you're altering it. You Sometimes they even put stuff on their faces. It's like, you know, Oof. actually you're desecrating our culture. But, you know, that's that's a huge discussion and, it, and it's 
far-reaching. And it's one of the reasons why getting together as Indigenous people and even moving together amongst these things is really important. And we tried that. We've tried moving as a group at these conventions and just saying to people, look, this is our stand, this is Indigenous. But it falls on deaf ears. They just see it as a way to um, copy our stuff and, you know, get free access. So that's why our Indigenous festivals become a really important feature for us because it's a safe space where we can debate those things, focus our energies on developing our own important things and and just disregard what's going the noise that's going on around us except when you know politically it's quite dangerous yeah and that the conversation because it's, it's appropriation right and uh, there's there's a few of us in the industry who are, are having those larger conversations of what is appreciation versus appropriation and I find that line to be so thin not even just with tattooing but just with sharing the like cultural sharing and at the bare minimum, right, you can't say that you appreciate and want to honor a thing, but not even bother to like go to the source and support the source, even fiscally, right? Like financially support the source and take the time to research and even just reflect like, is this actually something I need to be a part of, right? Like how easy would it be to just purchase a piece of wall art and still support that, right? Yeah. From like an indigenous artist. And so we have those those conversations a lot, at least in, in my circles, where, you know, for certain tattoos, like a very popular um, dream catchers, we're like, <laughs> I'm not tattooing a dream catcher on you, <laughs> right? And, and a question that I often ask my clients, even if they come to me with uh, ideas that are culturally relevant, religiously relevant, I'm like, are you a part of that culture? Like, what is your relationship to it? okay, you have a relationship to it. Alternatively, uh, I also know some artists who are of that culture. Would you, I can recommend them to you. Oftentimes folks are like, I want to come to you because whatever, whatever, that's fine. But that conversation, it's it's so important and it just gets lost. And, and for me, I always feel like it's personally, if I'm just using my own language here, it's white folks thinking that they have access to everything and just speaking from a black experience, thinking that they are allowed or, or they have been allowed to have access to everything. And not been a part of cultures that have been like historically and continuously denigrated, erased and silenced, right? When it comes to like blackness and hair, it's like, well, why can't I wear braids? It's like, I mean, you could do whatever you want, but understand that if a dark skinned black woman enters a workspace with her hair in a particular way, she will receive a particular kind of treatment versus if you were to enter a space doing that. And what are you doing to challenge that like that idea, those narratives, like that systemic barrier, it's not appreciation. You just kind of want to do what you want. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many really like, you know, dreadlocks, namaste, you know, these are all um, appropriations. And the thing is, is that they, it comes from a position of privilege and privilege doesn't really know what it's like to, you know, to have privilege. And then right. the other side of it, it comes from an industrial paradigm, you know, where consumerism, everything's product, not people. Mm, so you want the yeah. product, you want everything that the people have, but you don't want the people and you don't support what the people stand for. And I think that's that's the struggle with, you know, modern day society is that it's all about product and product edge. And as Indigenous mm -hmm. people that remind you that it's about people, that when we put a marking on, it's about an exchange. It's, it's about an exchange with the spirit world, with the old world, 
with our people that have passed, with our people that are, are coming, and with everything else that communicates our world. And, you know, I mean, I have people that understand that. I have people that fly in from across the world to get a piece. They want to come to Aotearoa, New Zealand. They want to feel that connection. You know, they build a connection of understanding every time they come to me. They get it. And, you know, obviously they have a a certain affluence to do that. Whereas on the other side, you've got people that just are lost in, in a way. I see them as lost that are just putting marking on because they think that they're marking a difference or something and it's not authentic. And I think that's our responsibility as as people, as we already understand that as Indigenous people, is to keep that connection with our art. And it's one of the reasons why I don't care what argument people put to me right at this moment that a non-Māori should have facial marking. You know, even if they have family that, that are Māori, even if they've been adopted, I don't buy it because in order to buy that, our community has to feel that they own Moko again, not just me as an artist, mm. but everybody, as, you know, they have to see that their community is moving, that the person that's, you know, my auntie doesn't feel that she can't take on Moko. And, you know, that's a long way in coming because it's not about that individual whether that, you know, non-Māori feels entitled. It's about whether that community is entitled. Mm. Whereas I'll apply moko all over the body to um, non-Māori, you know, at this point in time because it's an exchange. Because when I have that exchange, it's one more person that it's one more champion for Māori, you know, as opposed to them running to someone overseas and just getting some marking. There's no exchange happening there. There's no, there's right. nothing happening for our culture there. But if I, you know, have the exchange, then for me, that's one more soldier for us, you know. Uh, <laughs> one more ally. <laughs> obviously within reason, you know. Right. I'm not going to give it to an idiot. But <clears throat> where, where, where a true exchange happens, you know, that's what someone gets from me. So can you explain what Tamoko is and what does the process look like for those looking to get it done? So I, I'm assuming there's two different processes, one for those who are not Maori, um, who are just getting them on the body, and those who are who are doing face markings, if there is a different process. There isn't a different process for marking a non-Maori and a Maori as such, but there is a different process for the face. So for anyone that's getting moko, the process is understanding who they are because that's their genealogy, their whakapapa. They need to understand who I am. Um, and also the markings, like part of them are inherited. They're an inherent language that we've passed down. And that knowledge belongs with the artist and the artist has their own creative, you know, part to that as well. They've developed their own creative license, if you like, uh, their own language. So that's often recognisable. You know, you can recognise artists through through that. And there's some rules, obviously. And then there's a process by which we educate them, I guess, if they're non-Māori, as to what they're getting and why I've asked them for their family, what's their connection to New Zealand, to Māori, 
to our land, to the nature, what composes them as a person. You know, those are important exchange that we have. And also their journey, their struggles, because often it's about struggle and and a milestone that they're marking and a vision. So it's that past, present, future thing that defines everyone. And then if they're tribally Māori, then there's tribal aspects that go into their their marking. So a small marking obviously will have more tighter aspects, whereas a big marking like the legs and buttocks is like a whole genealogy going on there. There's a whole history. Mm. If it's on the face, there's some very generic areas that we often break out of some of that, but there's some meaning attached to each area. So that's why significantly it's, you know, restricted to Māori, in my belief system anyway. For a woman, um, it was very much associated with puberty. So when people ask, you know, there's various different ideas around entitlement, but, you know, back in the old day, we didn't have to say you have to speak Māori because that was a given. (laughs) We had that, Mm -hmm. you know, how much you're giving to your community, what you're doing to receive this. We received it when, you know, when we bled and we were looking for husbands and it was a natural part of our life. So, yes, there is a, a probably a stronger prerequisite today to being up, able to uphold it. In other words, you know, feeling like you can walk without it persecuting you in a job or whatever. You're going to get challenges no matter who you are. Are you Māori enough? You have to be able to answer those. But for me, it's a birthright. So as long as I don't think that you're going to end up drunken at the pub every day, you know, not trying to uplift your own prestige, your own mana as a person. And as long as you have some support, like you can show that there's people that support you and your family, then you're entitled to it. From my perspective, you know, if you don't have support, then that's really about throwing something on you that you're not going to be able to feel safe with. So there's a number of considerations. Not all artists believe the same thing. But, you know, I've like, I didn't get my own chin done and until 2018 so I agonized over a lot of these issues myself you know am I good enough can I speak the language enough am I connected to my community enough and it was one of my fellow revivalists from Tahiti that said to me well if you'd said all those things in the first place you wouldn't even be practicing muko like you are continuing to champion you know move those discussions and yet you're still sitting in that old you know, thought with yourself. And so what I found was it wasn't about whether I should have it, it was about where and how I had it to push that discussion further for me. Yeah, so we're guilty within our own communities of being harder on ourselves, you know, while the non-Māori run away with our stuff (laughs) without any conscience, you know. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's our own challenge as communities. So it kind of sounds like it's... um like a process and a practice that like you develop like a like a healing a healing that comes with it the way that you move the way that you occupy space or navigate the world the way that you represent your community is that is that at the root of it kind of I think that as as a a Maori and I I talk about political activism I think claiming your space as Maori is an act as a political act 
It doesn't matter what you do. You know, if you stand up and you walk outside, you're a Māori and that's a political act, actually, mm. because you're either defending yourself or you're working to better yourself. And for me, I'm, you know, my goal is to actively think about what I'm leaving as a legacy for my children, you know, how easy. And that's not just about aspects like moko, it's about the environment as well. You know, how are we expressing our legacy as as a people? And it's an urgent thing, you know. People don't understand when you come from privilege, you're on your laurels, actually. You, you, you don't actually think about that all the time, but I think about it all the time. What am I doing to make sure that my offspring have a better life as a Māori than than I did. There has been a big resurgence with Tamoko in the last few years, especially with like young people. What do you think has led to that? From a really like quantitative point of view, I think it takes a critical mass. And, you know, when I started doing Moko years ago, I never actually really consciously thought about whether it was going to be successful or not, you know, because you're always mm. in that struggle. And now when I, particularly when I'm in the room with other Moko artists, like I try to encourage that, you know, particularly sharing with women Moko artists, um, when I'm in the room, I'm acutely aware of, the success of revival, you know, and that means it's reached a quantum number. You know, at least 3% is considered a critical mass. So at least I know well in excess of 3% of Māori have moko in some form. So, you know, the fact that Māori can go out, open a studio, have economic security, wear moko without persecution, those are all huge milestones for our people. Mm. So looking back and realising that, you know, believing in what you do is really critical, that change can happen. And the second thing is obviously there's a lot of women working in that space. So, you know, I'm really comforted and really appreciative of that. It's changing the narrative that women didn't practice. And still I think we fall into the trap as people of, thinking about pre-European, going, oh, woman never did this, woman never did that. Well, you know, it's time we rewrote that history in our own narrative, like women are practising. We're not just a pre-European people anymore. This is who we are. We've adapted and there's this cool whakapapa, there's this cool genealogy to that. So that's really, really important is acknowledging that actually it's worthwhile doing what you do because it makes a difference. Um, what is really cool about the last five years is the proliferation of young wahine, particularly young women, getting their faces done. It's so normalised. And I say that's reaching the threshold of once again being just something that we take for granted. And sometimes, you know, we take young Māori take it for granted so much that we have to remind them that we struggled to get this, you know. Mm. It was only 30-something mm. years ago that we struggled to get this back. And now we have, I can pass people in the street that are wearing moko on their face. You know, that's something, you know, to be celebrated because it also spells another level of cultural health you know, that we can feel comfortable enough 
walking around in this world, declaring who we are visibly on our faces. You know, when I came back from, because I got my moko overseas, when I came back and I walked down the street on a, a predominantly older non-Māori white population of shop owners and people that I'm familiar with, I never got any negative comments. I go, oh, wow, mm. you look beautiful, you know, really, um, really heartening stuff. And I think, you know, that real change um, has happened for Māori and non-Māori through our marking. In fact, New Zealand is now one of the, and because we have Samoan and other traditional markings, cultural markings, New Zealand has become one of the destinations for, for receiving tattoo. And I feel like we've started to transform the industry. Like the industry yeah. is no longer about just going and getting something off the wall. It's actually about, even if it's not a Māori piece, someone wants to commemorate, they want to bring their family in it, they want to bring all these things that tattoo didn't, wasn't about that. You know, tattoo was about appropriating imagery way back, you know. So I feel like we've tra- started to transform the actual tattoo process in New Zealand. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, the realist culture of getting tattoos, which is dominant in, in the States, is has transformed, but definitely um, I feel that we've brought a better quality to marking bodies in New Zealand in general. It's definitely, there's a normalization that's happening with like the online world expanding as well, right? Like for us to be able to access cultures that otherwise we would have no idea about or understand. I'm curious, there was a young woman I seen on on TikTok who kind of went viral and it was kind of polarizing. She had gotten a facial marking, but she had gotten it in white ink. And there was a bit of like a polarizing discussion about whether or not it was valid enough because it wasn't done in a traditional black ink. Do you have any thoughts about that? Just like her being young and contemporary modernizing it or just kind of making it fit with, I guess, and her argument, her lifestyle or her aesthetic. How do you feel about that? Yeah, that is a, a kind of an interesting one because I've had within a group situation of having um, a, a lot of women practitioners together, we had a woman approach us about white on the face. And, you know, our our sort of challenge to her was, well, because she was like, oh, I think people would persecute me for having a dark one. And then we were like, well, are you ready? You know, are you ready to walk this world as a Māori proudly as a Māori, if you can't wear it as we would wear it. So I think there's an element of that going on. Like I don't really believe in white tattoos anyway because they don't they don't, they don't retain. Yeah, they don't yeah. survive the test of time. I would be sceptical if it was just for beauty and or fitting in reasons. But, you know, I have been known to add colour to facial marking. Yeah, so it, mm. I'm not totally against it I just would be questioning why and for me it's quite a long stretch from what our tradition is to putting it in white yeah her, I think her response really centered around not wanting to be as abrasive as she said it and like not as like noticeable and like even hearing this conversation with you now I'm like Right. Like you said, but that would be the point is to represent that. Yeah. You speak a lot about the challenges you've faced in the male dominated industry, especially like historical practice and like challenging that. Do you feel like things have changed since you started 
as an artist, like you said, you have like groups of uh, women practitioners now. Yeah, that's a difficult one because I think mm. fundamentally, like back in the day when I started, men supported with their mouth, but they couldn't always support with their whole being. And there's Speak always a, it, yeah. yeah, there's always a complexity. Like your yeah, woman, you gotta raise the children and do moko. But we support <laughs> you doing it, you know, we support you doing it. But <laughs> and then and then, you know, like I remember vividly some of the male artists handing around pictures of um women's pubic mounds and things that they'd done and they were handing the pictures around and I was like, you know what? That's not okay. And then one of the first moko I did was on the leg of a man. And they were like, so what? You're doing men? And I'm like, well, you've been taking artistic license and doing women forever. You know, if a man chooses to come to me, it's not like I tattooed his private parts, you know. <laughs> so, you know, there's some of those inequalities. I do think that men still dominate the narrative and they dominate those yes. spaces. So that's the other issue. There's, and there's a number of other areas that that moves around, including speaking rights, carving, you know. Mm. Um, whenever I take a representation for anything in New Zealand, I always make sure there's a gender balance. And, and you know, there's some really good men that move around those groups and they understand. So there's going to be as many women artists as men when I travel anywhere. Um, and I'm also a strong believer, and it's quite a radical thought, but, you know, Western society individualizes everything. If we're really yeah. true about our narrative and we want, you know, the council, for example, wants someone to represent Māori art, then we should have a man and a woman because everything in our belief system is about duality. You know, the earth and the sky exist together. Tapu, nor everything is about male and female duality. And therefore, to be genuine to our cultural belief is to have two people at the table. And so fundamentally, you know, I'm pushing that. Obviously, it's not going anywhere for, in some in a lot of contexts, but uh, that's the way I view, you know, women and everything. And, yeah, I get challenged all the time, you know. It's still difficult to take sometimes. Like, people will just totally zone out when I talk. Um, and that's an ageist thing as well. So instead of you know, paying respect to someone who's your elder, which is a tradition, Often I'll, right. get I'll get zoned out by young people, you know, young men who talk over me. Oh, no, no, uh, not no. young women as much, young men um, who just disregard you. That's come from Pākehā society as well. Yeah, I think that's there's just also just in general a huge disconnect with how we connect with our our elders because so much of storytelling, so much of like learned history is through storytelling and there's such an importance in, in having elders and listening and taking a step back. And I, I guess putting down that like sort of young ego, that ego that comes with, with youth, I think, mm. and taking the time to listen, you know, you can ask questions. And I know that because we, you know, young folks are far more educated in a lot of things, have access to particular kinds of language now, have certain questions and want to challenge. But I think there's a way that can be done in a respectful yeah. manner? I mean, it's a middle-class white male thing too. Like they often hold positions of power and they they speak, they say they speak on behalf of their community, but they're actually speaking on behalf of themselves because they actually don't do the due diligence and go out and ask every question to their community. So they're the ones that kind of go, you ask them something 
And they're like, they got the answer, even though they haven't got the answer. <laughs> and they don't value you for what you do know, you know. So, yeah. but anyway, the important thing to me is that there's way more women that are working in that space. And, when, you know, I went to a gathering a couple of years ago, and they've been having these gatherings frequently of practitioners of moko. And the most articulate, the most vocal, the most onto it at that gathering with a woman. They stood up because they've had to fight for where they are. So right. they, they don't sit there and just like take anything for granted. They had to justify themselves 20 times over. They had to show they knew their, their stuff. They had to show they had the best practice and they had to be a vocal. And so they were the ones standing up and challenging because I'm always like to the boys, stop broing the guy down the road who's not Māori that's doing tattoo, Māori tattoo. Stop going, hey, bro, chair, bro. You're the ones that should be working, walking in there and going, why are you doing this? You know, mm-hmm. and, and instead it's the woman. It's us fighting those battles all the time. I wonder, because I hear so much of what you, you talk about and so much of that the culture and practice being very binary, how can it or how does it include queer folk and folks who are non-binary, who don't ascribe to the gender binary? Like how, how can they relate to or have a relationship with this practice? Yeah, this is also an interesting discussion that, that's popped up a number of times um, around the mokul circles. Like I have a really, you know, I have a really fluid view of it, like, and it can be difficult because people can change their mind, but that's people, right? So, you know, someone that that actually um, feels that they're more masculine than feminine and they come and they're questioning whether to get their face, facial mokul done, I think that's a journey, you know, because once you get particular pieces, yes, you're visually as ascribe as, as male or female. I don't think that one is more suited to the other. And I do think that there is more markings than what we just, what we portray as authentic, because those are really polarizing the male face and the female face and what might, mm-hmm. you know, a non-binary face look like. You know, so those are things that I'm willing to challenge because I think what we only what we have is we only have evidence of tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of what we did pre-European, and we it's up to us to open those possibilities based on what we do know and and based on where we are. I think that that's a complex one for Maori because I think that we generally we tend to the binary. And, of course, colonisation has accentuated that. And, you know, I'm forever learning off our Canadian First Nations that, you know, they actually have that non-binary identity. Two-spirit yeah. yeah. But, I, you know, that's within us too, and we tend to forget that. And like you say, as we come, come up to challenging those notions of the singular within Western, I think that we have to start working harder on those notions and we have started talking about those issues within larger mukul groups as how we approach those identities. And having those those folks come come to the table and have those conversations, right? Absolutely. Um, for me, as an, a person that identifies as non-binary, I also identify with Black womanhood. So I allow for uh, Black folks to refer to me as, as she, as they identify me as being like Black or mixed Black. And the non-black folks as as they them, 
but my relationship to black womanness is not centered in like a Eurocentric or white supremacist idea of what womanhood is, more so the lived experience and how I navigate the world, how I understand it. Also, there's also a conversation with like particularly dark skinned black um, non-binary femmes who say that black womanhood is inherently masculinized because of colonization, because of white supremacy. So who even gets to occupy the space of like womanhood and manhood, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And these conversations are so complex. So, you know, having folks who are trans identified, who are non-binary it, as a part of those conversations to talk about those nuances and for them to also explore those nuances, I think is important. It is important. And the thing is, is that we've had various people um, join us in those discussions. But as a practitioner, if you're going to be um, walking that space as a practitioner as well, I think you very much have to find security in who, where you sit within those. Because otherwise, you know, I've had instances where it's very complex and they and people just explode themselves. Because the identity is so complex and you don't walk comfortably in this world. You have to figure out how to be comfortable in this world in order to politically activate with good responsibility to your clients. You can't be putting shit on them, you know. And and I mean emotional baggage and shit, you know. You Mm -hmm. have to be able to deal with your own shit before you start marking people so it's so really complex because we're all carrying baggage of colonial baggage and yeah. and we have a responsibility when we exchange um why do we call it when we exchange our spirit with someone through more call through that process because it is a spiritual process it, it is a connection not with just with us but with everything you know with our ancestors that we're not throwing crap onto emotional crap spiritual crap onto someone else and I do feel that if we lose sight of mokoi as a practice then that's what happens is that we just aggravate some of the neg- negative aspects of colonization well thank you so much did you have anything you wanted to leave uh, the audience with anything that you're working on for folks to keep an eye on any accounts to follow projects to engage with If you want to follow what we do, our Facebook handle for what we do um, in terms of Indigenous festival, Indigenous tattooing. If you look at tatuhimareikura.org, that's our website. And we also have a social media, Facebook and Instagram, which is the same. And to find out more, it's actually quite a good page just to focus on resources, actually to understand a little bit more about Māori mokō. That's it for today's episode, folks. Go ahead and follow at the Teardown Pod on all socials. Also, make sure to leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. The podcast is hosted by me, Vegas Inc. This episode was edited and mixed by Ali Silhoua and was produced in collaboration with Edit Audio. Special shout out to producers Kathleen Specker and Melissa Houghton, and I'll see you at our next session.